Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Presented by T-Mobile, the official wireless partner of Odyssey Sports. With an awesome network and great savings, there's never been a better time to join T-Mobile. Visit your neighborhood store to make the switch today. There was a recent report issued by the 5th National Climate Assessment earlier this month. It warned of wide-ranging climate impacts throughout the United States. But it went on to say that the implications for people and the environment in the Mississippi River Basin, which is, which is big, it's large, it's incredible, are extreme. But experts stress that it's not too late to slow the worsening effects. A lot of this has to do with variability in precipitation. And one of the individuals that was cited in the article, Jill Trepanier, associate professor, graduate advisor, and faculty advisor to the Geography and Anthropology Undergraduate Society at the Louisiana State University, joins us. Jill, welcome to the show. Hi. Thank you so much for having me, Noah. Good morning. So um, this fifth national climate assessment, this report is re- is released by whom and what does it reveal relative to us down here that we should be concerned with? So the fifth national climate assessment is released by the U.S. government. It's really their eminent report on on climate change impacts, the types of risks that we see throughout the region and throughout um, really kind of specific places. And, And here in the Gulf Coast region, There's some focus on extreme weather variability. There's also some information about things like sea level rise, which is a longer term climate change impact. Um, And so, you know, we we like to see those reports issued so that people can use them to try to better prepare for or understand what they might expect moving into the future. So when we talk about uh, extreme weather variability, uh, are we? Do we go back and look at historical data and, and see what some of the anomaly weather patterns we know that they have, have existed in, compa- in comparison to what we're experiencing in more modern times? Oh, absolutely. So one of the things scientists have to do to try to understand what's happening today is to understand what happened in the past. We use that information to think about and, and think about what we expect, and, and a lot of times our societal infrastructure, like where people are, where the roadways are, they're all based on what we expect from that historical occurrence. We take that information, and then we pair it with our understanding of how things are changing and what that means for those historical extremes that we see. And I can talk about specifics, if you'd like to, related to things like yes, hurricanes. Please. Yes, of course. So so tropical cyclones are a hurricane, right, it, once it hits a certain level of wind speed. These are systems that thrive on warm water, warm energy available to them to transfer from one area to the other. And we see that transfer manifest as a really big wind, right? 
if we think of an environment that's a bit warmer that provides additional fuel to these types of systems. And so when we do see them, we tend to see larger changes than what we've seen in the past just due to the available energy that that has now become part of our current and likely future world. So when we try to predict or even think about what's going to happen, it's rooted in history and what we understand to have happened. And then it's rooted in our understanding of physics and mathematics and atmospheric science, et cetera. And we build it into computer models, um, statistical models, mathematical models to try to predict what might happen. So when we go and we look in arrears, right, in the aftermath, and we're doing and we're studying the after action of a particular pattern that's been predicted to be overactive for a given year, and it's not, how do we explain that away? How do we square that up, at, you know, so that the historical record is, for lack of a better term, sacrosanct as much as possible? Sure. So I think one of one of the things that people um, – need to to think about is every year every it's constantly changing the system that is the that is the earth right this is combination of atmosphere hydrosphere where the water flows and how the heat is transferred and it's constantly changing with this series of inputs and then the output that we experience on the ground so if we have a system set up in a certain way we can try to expect what will occur based on that system setup. Think of it, I think of it as a puzzle, right? A series of puzzle pieces. Mm -hmm. What does the puzzle look like when you're done? And that's what we're trying to predict. We try to predict what the puzzle looks like before it's completed, which is a, a tough job. When we look to history, it shows us versions of the puzzle. But what? But every version is a little different. Every year, if you take the puzzle apart and you look at it in a slightly different scale or a slightly different scope, it looks a little bit different, and we—I'm a geographer at, at my, you know, my core. So when I think about the patterns that we see, that's one of the things we try to utilize in this creation of future puzzle pieces, right? And so when we think about a year that doesn't match up with exactly what we would expect the puzzle to look at, we have to figure out what puzzle piece wasn't in the right place that we thought it was, right? So it's tends to be like this year. We saw a relatively reduced number of tropical cyclones, but a lot of this has to do with dominant high pressure that sits over various regions. One, there was high pressure that sat over the entirety of the U.S., which is what led to such severe droughts. But we also have high pressure that's situated over the Atlantic Ocean. This can help redirect storms into the main North Atlantic. We call them fish hurricanes because they don't mess with anything but the fish. Mm -hmm. Or they get directed into the coast of the United States, which is not what happened this year, thankfully. But has you know those are the those are the big puzzle pieces that are separate from things like a changing climate, but are just part of that history of the way the system functions. And so, one of the things scientists do, if like as you said, one of those years doesn't match up or the variability doesn't look like what we expected, is we try to figure out which one of those puzzle pieces we had off that now needs to be reoriented. And every time we learn, it helps us to better understand what's coming in the future. So a lot of times we identify the what, but the why. So why did we have the high-pressure system? And, and why did it occur at that time? And why was it, it 
why was it of such duration? And in many cases, why is it of such severity? Okay, great question. So when you say high pressure there, there are two that I mentioned. One that was kind of sitting over the main contiguous U.S., the lower 48, right, where we saw so, particularly here, right, in Louisiana, we saw so much incredible drought. I had some students working, and just for frame of reference, the last two Augusts, we had nine inches of rainfall at the station that we have on our building here at LSU. And Mm -hmm. this August, we saw less than a half of an inch, if you can believe it. I mean, an incredible reduction, and the average is about six inches. So, huge difference in rainfall this this last year. Now, one thing that's actively being researched by people like myself, though I am not I'm not actively doing this particular research is to figure out exactly that question, why did that high pressure situate itself over the US in such a dominant fashion? And it has a lot to do with the jet stream or what's called the polar front, the polar jet stream where you have this for lack of a better word, I mean, I can give you better words, but for the for world to understand it, this sort of meandering or wiggling upper level air system that can pull really high pressure or colder air down into parts of the U.S. that might lead to this really big change in the variability of rainfall. And so that's one of the reasons that we saw that happen, but it's being researched as I speak. And then the High pressure that exists over the Atlantic is controlled predominantly by something called the North Atlantic Oscillation, which is a a big seesaw in pressure between the northern part of the North Atlantic and a slightly closer area near near Bermuda. And so we think of this area of pressure, and it kind of fluctuates back and forth, as a large puzzle piece that is pretty that is dominated within that historical context of that Earth system. So it's not related to climate change. It's just related to a a normal seesaw and pressure related to jet stream patterns that we see. So there's kind of two there. I hope that helped. Yeah. And I guess the, the thing that I find confusing, though, is, you know, in the identification of what many may call an anomaly, right? Is this mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. an unusual thing? Why that? What importance it plays in the overall scheme of things? Because when we when I read things that say, and for instance, in this article that was provided as a result of the fifth uh, national climate assessment, mm-hmm. that you know we've had this extreme drought over this the past two years, and that we had isolated extreme uh, partic- precipitation and flooding at the same time. Mm-hmm. A mm-hmm. lot of this seems to be timing, you know, where these fronts come through. A lot of times they come through here in southeast Louisiana. They move north to Baton Rouge. They don't hit New Orleans. It's predicted to hit New Orleans. And at the last minute, everything continues on a northeasterly flow. And mm-hmm. we're free and clear. And then the following week, it may work just to the opposite. Sure. And so, you know, when we talk about the outcomes and as and we try to uh, – interpolate that into a climate change hypothesis or whatever that we want to talk about, I'm having difficulty connecting these dots all the time uh, because I don't see data. I guess it is there, but I just don't see it that links why this, why now, why the severity, and why the duration. Um, And, you know, we say that it could be the polar jet stream, the North Atlantic Oscillation, that maybe meandered left, right, east, west, or whatever. Uh, 
But a lot this happens all the time. And then when we go back in history and we look at those anomalies, do we really understand why those things occurred? You know, just off the top of my head, the great drought of what was it, 1929, or was that the year we had the sure. uh, mm-hmm. the great drought in, in in the mid Midwest, one of the longest in duration and severity, the major dust bowl. Why? What happened then? You know that that happened, and is it fair to assume that it's going to happen again, and again, and again, and how frequent? Sure. So those are, that was all. Those are all wonderful thoughts, and and there's a lot packed into that. So I think first, it it is reasonable that when you're getting reports where somebody says it's going to rain more in a place, and then we also expect it to have more severe droughts in that place, and it's confusing because they sometimes seem like they are the antithesis of one another. Sometimes it seems like there's not data to support. Um, say, what might be a very localized event, right? Like, as you said, sometimes in, mm-hmm. in New Orleans, it, it doesn't come through even though we think it's going to, and then it passes by unscathed, and then the next time it doesn't, right? So I think, number one, <laughs> there is a, a fundamental difference from what I've found in the expectation for what people think we should be able to tell about the weather and the climate in the environment, and then what we are actually able to tell about the weather and the climate and the environment, right? So this idea that because we have data and we have this background understanding that we should be able to predict the future, and theoretically, you might get to that point, but we are still learning. I mean, I'm 38 years old, and Doppler radar is as old as I am. And so our ability to actually utilize this data, this this incredible amount of big data, is in its infancy. So we really are learning with every sort of passing moment. Now, that being said, one of the things that I think is is at its core, what you were describing, right, is much of our current existence as humans is living in a system where things are relatively stable. And so we've built, and that's from our understanding, and you're right, the further back in time we go, do we know exactly what happened? No, I wasn't there, so I don't know exactly what happened. But I have a variety of tools and and methods to try to understand what happened more so than not knowing at all, right? So I have some information which allows me to at least have an idea of what's going on. And so when I think about building that back in time, there's definitely uncertainty the further back that we go. But from our understanding, the last, say, 10,000 years or so have been relatively stable as the system had already reworked itself from a period of growing ice. And we've been melting ice on our planet for a really long time. And what we're seeing now from what all theory and actual real-world observations suggest is a system that's in state of flux, that suddenly something has tipped over this threshold, and we can talk about what that might be, but it's leading toward a system that's going in a state of higher-level change. I argue and discuss to my students that the climate is always in a state of change, never stops, because, again, as I said earlier, right, it's constantly a series of inputs and outputs. But if you now suddenly have a system that's changed enough to where it's re-regulating its amount of energy, right? At the core, our atmosphere functions on a regulation of energy. We get a lot at the equator, not a lot at the poles, and so it's constantly being distributed. 
if you think of it as a massive heat engine or a massive system, if we change any amount of that for any reason, it's going to lead to a change in that in that system. And so that's what we see as this large variability of what we expect from year to year, day to day, as we learn is a response to a system and change that we've not seen before at this rate. So we try to take every year of data as it comes. Our computers get better. Our humans get smarter. We're trying to, to solve the issues. But it seems, from my perspective, it related to the NCA, the, the National Climate Assessment, folks are starting to communicate with one another in a place, in a way that I've not seen in my professional life before. You know, you mentioned I was listening to your um, wonderful Toys for Tots discussion earlier, and that's that's fantastic. And the community is coming together. And in a lot of time, in a lot of ways, the world of politics and policy and science communication and education they're starting to move toward a good direction of of open lines between all of it, which should push us in the direction of helping to protect things like the Gulf Coast. How much um, of the of the delay, let's say, of coming together and reaching some consensus or getting closer to some consensus on a lot of this is um, the failure to do so it caused by the, these doomsday predictions, you know, that we're not going to be around in 30 years. And, oh, my goodness. Yeah, you know, that's too doomsday. I mean, we just, yes. hit the, we just hit the 30 day, we hit the thirty years, and then I forgot who it was that said it back, you know, in the mm-hmm. 70s or 80s and you know it was it was a political leader and here we are um, sure i mean <laughs> oh yeah so i think i think that's a huge part of it so I, I when i teach um students because that's as a professor i do many things and one of them is teach quite a few humans and when i when i tell them if you're going to talk to anyone this is just a life skill but if you're going to talk to anyone don't lead with what's all wrong and how it's all going to lead in destruction if you want them to do anything about it right because right. people yeah. do not respond well to that in any in any setting and so specifically in my world if if I'm going to talk to someone anyone a fisher person any stakeholder that lives across the coast and they'd like to know what I think their world might look like. You know, I, I have them lead the way and discuss what they've seen. And so that way I can help them understand that in context. And then we can work toward a solution together. I'm a solution-oriented person. And I think we're starting to move more in that direction in the community. And so I think you're exactly right. I think p- part of the failure to launch is a product of, people leading very much with this is your fault now you fix it and nobody likes to hear that so if we can change the direction of that communication while still aiming toward the same goal then we're winning right because we're still toward solutions and we're not making everybody very frustrated and closed off in the process well when we elect our members to congress it should probably be mandatory that they take one of your classes (laughs) well i'll take that as a compliment it is that sounds good that sounds good so so it's like we're not going to speak in these platitudes where everything is coming to an end in 10 years or 20 years we need to there's other ways to do that absolutely well thank you so much uh for your time your insight we truly appreciate it jill trepanier assistant professor graduate 
graduate advisor and faculty advisor to the Geography and Anthropology Undergraduate Society at the Louisiana State University. Have a great holiday season. You too. Thank you so much, and thanks for all you do. Bye-bye. Thank you. We'll be right back, folks. 504-260-1870 on the Oakland Heart Jewelers Talk and Text Line. Stay with us. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones so we'll never lose touch with civilization and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.